Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And it's it's my tremendous pleasure um, tonight to introduce Professor Rajiv Bhargav. It's a particular pleasure for me because we worked out a few days ago that it's almost 30 years that um, I've known Rajiv. And during that time, he's played a leading role in some of the most important uh, academic institutions in India. He was for a long time the Professor of Political Theory at the Jawaharlal Nehru University. He was the head of the politics department at Delhi University. And in recent years, he's been the director of that remarkable institution, the Centre for the Study of Developing Societies, the CSDS. And his publications are numerous, um, so numerous that you'll be pleased that I'm not going to list them all, but I thought I'd give you a flavour of his work by citing four important books that he's written, Individualism and Social Science, Secularism and its Critics, What is Political Theory and Why Do We Need It?, The Promise of India's Secular Democracy, Well, you don't need to spend long in India, and I've spent some time there, to realise that Professor Bhargava is a powerful voice in Indian intellectual life. But he's also someone who bestrides the world stage. Now, there's a lot of talk about global scholars and global debate. Um, I think we here at the LSE often talk that way too. But... Rajiv Bhargava really is a global scholar, a scholar whose insights and wisdom have been sought out by prestigious institutions in many, many countries around the world, not only in the English-speaking world. He's been a visiting fellow or engaged in collaborative research here at the British Academy, at Harvard University in the United States, Columbia University in New York, the Australian National University, also in Canada at Queen's University, but also outside the English-speaking world in Berlin, Vienna, Istanbul, Jerusalem, Paris, and in fact, I'm just going to stop because it starts to get a little bit embarrassing. Professor Bhargava is going to speak tonight on rethinking secularism. You can see the full title there. And he's going to speak for about 50 minutes, and then we're going to have a lot of time for questions and discussion. So can I ask you to join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Rajiv Bhargava. Someone in red has to answer that question. Am I audible at the back? Is that is that okay? Yes. All right. Uh, well, it's a it's a real real privilege and a big honour for me to be here at the London School of Economics uh, and to deliver the Ralph Miliband lecture. When we were students in uh, in Delhi, uh, there was a huge debate on, I mean, there was a debate between Ralph Miliband on the one hand and Nikos Pulanzas on the other, and all of us as students had to go through that debate, and we had to take sides, and uh, I have to say that at that time, wrongly, I think I sided with Nikos Pulanzas, but I'm, 
I'm pretty certain that if I were to go back to the debates today, I would certainly be with Ralph Miliband. Uh, so it's a, it's a particular honor. It's a, it's a name that was known uh, you know, well beyond the, uh, beyond the United Kingdom. Uh, everybody in India who had anything to do vaguely with the left uh, was, was not only familiar with, but deeply, deeply and intensely uh, implicated in, in this entire debate. So, so I'm, I'm really honored that I've been invited to give this lecture. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, uh, it's also a great honor for me to be here because some of my teachers are sitting here, and, and it's, uh, it's always terrific to have them uh, here uh, uh, while one is giving a talk. So I'd like to begin by outlining the main claims of my... I don't normally use this technology, but I thought I should here. Um, and so, yeah. So, uh, so I'd like to begin by, uh, by outlining the main claims of the lecture that follows. But I shall do so not schematically or in crisply formulated, sequentially arranged points as is done on the, on, the, on the whiteboard, but by taking you back to a little over 20 years ago when a small group of scholars, propelled largely by Indian social and political concerns, began discussing secularism. At that time, the term secularism was used in the wider public discourse of much of the Western world to denote secular humanism, a comprehensive ethical worldview that presupposed the denial of radical transcendence and therefore of a transcendent God, and that enjoined all humans to lead the entirety of their lives on, by their lights, the sound assumption that an exhaustive description of complete human flourishing can be given by cataloging all ends pursued by them here and now, only in this world and in this time. That this had implication for political principles or a theory of statecraft was simply taken for granted, not explicitly worked out. There was no public discussion in the West of what in a paper uh, because I was located in India, right? Uh, what in a paper written in 1991 I called political secularism. This lack of attention to political secularism was also characteristic of the academic world, where much was written on the actual or alleged empirical historical patterns of transformation and differentiation of the religious and the secular institutional spheres. In other words, there was extensive and detailed theorization of the process of secularization by sociologists. But political theorists singularly failed to devote attention to the normative issues uh, pertaining to the complex relations between state and religion, precisely that which was central to political secularism. So that was the first point. I mean, the... the, the, the to be able to, to focus on political secularism as distinct from secularization on, on, on one side and this comprehensive ethical doctrine called secular humanism on the other side. But even those who realized at that time 
the need for a proper, proper theory of political secularism, widely believed that political secularism came in just one form, that it was Western in origin and texture, a gift of European Christianity, or born out of the dialectic of Protest Protestantism and the Enlightenment, and that it entails a strict separation of church and state. It was unproblematically and naively believed that though it was culturally and even religiously specific, this political secularism, and the broader church-state framework presupposed by it could and would have to be transplanted to other different non-Christian societies regardless of the difficulties involved. I mean, that was partly to do with modernization theories and, and uh, it was believed that if you, had to, if you wished to realize certain normative ideals, uh, then this very culturally specific uh, Christianity-related political secularism simply has to be transplanted. In other words, everybody has to, in some ways, become westernized and, in to, to, to some extent, at least for this purpose, Christianized. Uh, now, in the past 20 years, all this has changed. First, there's greater awareness among the academics, even in the West, that political secularism, as I just mentioned, is a relatively independent theoretical object of study, uh, distinct from, as I said, from secularization on the one hand and secular humanism on the other. Two, that it comes not in one, but in many versions. There exists multiple political secularisms. And three, a large part of this plurality comes by virtue of the belated recognition that, that apart from the church-state framework, another framework exists that 20 years ago we called the, the religious strife model or the religious diversity model, but today we can even call it the religious domination model. We moved in this direction, took these steps, as we were compelled to acknowledge the immense religious diversity existing in the world today. And we discovered that the church-state model and the political secularisms that flowed from it were limited and increasingly losing relevance. These secularisms were in crisis, not only in parts of the world where at one time they seemed to have traveled rather well, or traveling rather well, but also in places where they first originated and thrived. Hence the desperate need to reconceive or rethink or reconceptualize secularism. So political secularism was to be viewed, was to be viewed not simply as a matter of, of a relationship between church and state, but as a, as, as a perspective that must be there in response to deep religious diversity. And since power relations are endemic to diversity, we need to recognize the hidden potential of religious-related dominations in diverse societies. Hence, political secularism must be seen as a response to institutionalized religious domination that itself takes two broad forms, inter- and intra-religious domination. Once we do so, we can more clearly see that political secularism is not intrinsically anti-religious. It is not against religion, but rather against institutionalized religious domination. This means that we can adopt a 
that we cannot adopt a simple attitude of either respect or passive respect towards religion on the one hand or active disrespect towards religion which is characteristic of the church state models but we need to take a more complex more dialectical attitude of what I call critical respect towards all religions and this also compelled us to abandon unpacking the metaphor of separation as exclusion and view it instead as principal distance, a term that I shall explain towards the end of my lecture. Now, I've taken, uh, and th so these main claims, I, I put them uh, before you, and I, and I promised that I won't go uh, schematically. Oh, God, I made a mistake here. Oh, there. Okay, so this one, this one is covered. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so... Um, so uh, I know that uh, these introductory remarks have taken more than, uh, you know, have taken me uh, a long time, and they're bound to take me at least five minutes over the, the, the time that has been allotted to me. Uh, but I, but, but I'm, so I'm going to move from 55, 50 to 55 minutes, Robin. Uh, it looks like that. But allow me to delineate the, the elementary conceptual structure of political secularism. Uh, the broadest formulation of political secularism, given that it's a normative perspective, is that the state must be separated from religion or political institutions must be separated from religious institutions for the sake of some values. The political secularisms that I'm going to discuss immediately and that for the sake of convenience I shall call Western secularism Western secularisms interpret this elementary conceptual structure more narrowly to mean the state must be separated from church or church-based religions for the sake of primarily one value. These are kind of single, predominantly single-value doctrines. And this separation can itself be understood to exist at three different levels. At the level of ends, that is level two here, uh, which means that the ends of the state, the goals and objectives of the state, the purposes for, the, for which political institutions are designed, must not be the same as the ends of religion. Transcendence, the, the salvation, or I mean, just to put it very simply, salvation cannot be one of the ends of of of, uh, of, a, of a secular state, right? That's that's one. Second, at the level of institutions and personnel, so the priestly class cannot be the same as or identical to the political class, or, and political institutions and religious institutions must also be separate. There cannot be a fusion between these two institutions. And finally, at, the level, at level three, and I've written sometimes here, the separation at the level of law and public policy, namely that religion cannot be the object of law and public policy. And, and, and I said, uh, I've written here, sometimes it shouldn't be, because uh, there are many secularisms that don't really... Uh, identify level three as being central to political secularism. Okay, in what I call religion-centered states, 
a connection between religion and state exists at each of the three levels. In theocracies, there is a strong constitutive connection at all levels, and in states with establishment, a formal and legal tie exists at levels one and three, but there is some disconnection at level two. Unlike religion-centered states, secular states disconnect from religion at levels one and two, but as I said, at level three, there are variations. In fact, different forms or versions of political secularism emerge from how the metaphor of separation is unpacked at level three, as well as from which values give point to separation, which among them is primary, paramount, overriding, and so on. Keeping this structure in mind, what I'll do now, once again for the sake of convenience rather than for empirical accuracy, uh, I'll call the first model the idealized French model. I could call it different. I could sort of disconnect it from specific countries, but, but I think for my purpose here it will do, and so I'll continue to use it. But I'll call it the idealized French model because it is not a model that you find on the ground in practice all the time, even in France, and certainly not in those countries which have been inspired by France. Okay, here, as I said, separation exists at level one and two. That's common to all political secularisms. But at level three, separation is interpreted to mean one-sided exclusion. The church or church-based religions are excluded from the affairs of the state. There is freedom of state from church. But state, the state need not exclude itself from the affairs of the church or from church religions. It retains the power to interfere in church affairs, generally to hinder them, to hinder the church, but in some sense, and in some cases, to even help it. But, in, but the overall motivation here is to control the church and to control church-based religions. Now, this, of course, has to do with the internal context of France, where the church was viewed to be politically meddlesome and interfering and over a period of time increasingly to be socially oppressive. So it was marked, this political secularism was marked by great hostility on the part of the state towards the church and towards Christianity more generally. It was, as a whole lot of people know here, profoundly anti-clerical. So the attitude of the state was one of, in different degrees, over a different period of the time, active disrespect towards religion. French secularism, or laicite, was a product of unchurching struggles. To remove or reduce church control over society, politics, and the state, uh, and, 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 and uh, to expel organized religion, or what the French call cult, uh, from uh, from public space generally and from the paradigmatic example of public space, namely the official public place of the state, space of the state. In short, religion must be privatized. Citizens may enter the public or the political domain, but must leave behind their religious identity or communal belonging. They must enter as, within quotes, abstract citizens, uh, the rights that accrue to them uh, 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 do so directly uh, as individual citizens, unmediated by membership to any community. The principal value underlying separation 
is our common identity as citizens or as equal citizens. Now, what happens actually on the ground, as I said, might be different, but this conception or model of laicite is part of the French political imagination. And as an abstract ideal, it has traveled often successfully to many parts of the world. We know that Turkey was, you know, uh, had a dis- it had taken hold of the imagination of the political elites in Turkey at one time. It's traveled to the former communist states in Russia and China and so on. And it certainly feeds the imagination, and probably still does, uh, the imagination of Francophile individuals in virtually every corner of the world. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I moved to the right, the second model. The second model, which I again call the idealized American model, interprets separation not to mean one-sided exclusion, but to mean mutual exclusion. So here, church, or rather churches, are excluded from the affairs of this, from the state, But likewise, the state is also excluded from the affairs of the church. Neither is meant to get into the domain of the other. Each has its own area of jurisdiction, and so separation here must be complete, to use Madison's words, perfect or strict, or to use Jefferson's phrase, There should be a wall of separation between state and church. So here, ideally speaking, and according to this model, and I have to caution that this is not the only modern in America, but one which was pretty dominant, at least at one time. So here, state neither helps nor hinders uh, churches or religions. There is no intervention. There is not even any entanglement. The context in which this doctrine emerged has to do with the proliferation of Protestant churches of many different kinds. Each regional state had its own established church, but as you know, the Anglican church was still the established church of the whole of America uh, at one time. And when America became independent, it had to take a decision, it had to figure out which of the many churches had to be established at the the federal level. And uh, there was uh, already... Uh, This was already there, but there was also a great potential of it happening in future interdenominational conflict. Uh, And and if if one of these churches was established at the federal level, then there would have been denominational domination. So wisdom and prudence dictated that there be disestablishment. So the Congress was not to make any law concerning religion. The point of separation at all levels was to prevent, to, was to pr- protect religious liberty, the choice to enter or exit uh, the church, uh, uh, the, the preferred, preferred church, or to form new churches. So another way of formulating the end of this mutual exclusion of state and church could have been, you know, you could formulate it as denominational pluralism. So mutual exclusion, that's what secularism meant, meant here, mutual exclusion for religious liberty or for denominational pluralism, or to put it another way, mutual exclusion to reduce interdenominational conflict or denominational denomination. That's the model of the United States, the secularism in the United States. Again, uh, the practice, in practice, the wall is porous. 
but this is a model that has captured the, the political imagination of many, many people uh, all over the world. Uh, uh, okay. Now, the situation in the rest of Western Europe is quite different. I mean, the Western Europe... Western European experience is actually the least theorized and hasn't been articulated as a normative ideal or a model. It's only recently, in the last couple of years, that a, one member of our Luz group, uh, Tariq Madud, has tried to formulate it and has called it moderate secularism. It can be called secularism for, because the historical pattern of some degree of hostility to churches and church religions that emerged robustly and militantly in France is also to be found in most Western European countries. As a result, the social and political power of churches has been highly restricted uh, due to these unchurching struggles. Two, there has been a decline not only in church belonging but also in belief in Christianity as we know, if there's one place where secular humanism or exclusive humanism is strong and is naively taken for granted by a lot of people, it is Europe. And three, politically, uh, constitutional regimes that offer the, same, offer the same basket of formal rights to all individuals, regardless of religion. And these regimes are pretty well entrenched. However, and this is pretty important for, for the kind of secularism we have in, in much of Western Europe. However, it is equally true that in several countries, no separation exists even at the first level. That is to say, at the level of ends. And perhaps not even at the second level, at the level of institutions and personnel. As we know, there are several states in Europe which grant monopolistic privilege to one or the other branch of Christianity. Anglican Church in England, Presbyterian Church in Scotland, Lutheran in all Nordic countries except Sweden, Orthodox Church in Greece. In fact, 19% of Western European countries grant monopolistic privilege by, 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 by instituting uh, 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 establishment of the church. Uh, they, do, they do that. More crucially, at level three, which is at the level of law and public policy, there is state intervention in the form of support for the dominant church. All European countries fund education in schools run by churches or by religious institutions. This includes licensed France, where 20% of all French students still go to private schools, uh, private Catholic schools. And 80% of the budget of private Catholic schools is covered by state funds. 67% of European countries have a government department of religious affairs. 44% of them uh, either have government, require government positions uh, which are related to religion or fund the clergy. 37% of them are such that government collects taxes on behalf of the churches or for churches. 33% uh, funding uh, from the government is available to religious charitable institutions and so on. So there's a lot of support here for Christian churches. 
as of now, although this was, as I said, the case, this, this was certainly the case in the past, there was, a, there was some hostility and negative intervention. Uh, as of now, one sees that there is very little negative intervention, or I could, you know, I could be wrong here, but say on issues of homosexuality or, or, uh, or ordination of women's priests, you don't really expect the state to do something, pass a law against it. That certainly uh, can't happen. So the relation between state and church is not hostile, but friendly. There's a lot of positive intervention in the form of support. There's a lot of, you might say, positive entanglement. And one church or some churches are protected and institutionally respected. So at best one might say that state and church have distanced themselves from one another. This is no strict separation. This is no wall of separation. Uh, this is, uh, there is you, this, you, you, the metaphor of separation probably is not the right, uh, or you can just say that separation itself is interpreted as distance. So they, they distance themselves to, in order to provide, and that gives the point of, to distance for mutual support, particularly at level three. Uh, And these uh, state support, this state support is, as I said, to, is very partial to the dominant church. When it comes to the domain of religion, despite all the formal rights which are available to individuals, regardless of religion, within the religious domain, there exists, there is no neutrality or impartiality. This, State institutions have a strong institutional bias uh, towards Christianity and in particular to the preferred church. So let me quickly give examples. I don't know how much time I've taken. Uh, it's still... 30 minutes you've taken. Uh, 30 minutes. I've taken 30 minutes already. You've got 25 minutes. 25 minutes. You know, because we started with an introduction by you. Uh, and that's <laughs> I have to negotiate this all the time no, I hope I'm, I want to finish in 15 minutes anyway to take a few examples in England public funding covers 85% of the costs of all voluntary aided schools uh, these figures are a bit old but, but if I'm not wrong that means 4,700 Anglican schools are funded by the state 2,000 Roman Catholic schools are funded by the state there are quite a few Jewish schools, I don't know the exact number, which are funded by the state. But the last time that I tried to find the figures for funding available to Muslim schools, this was a few years ago, the number was between two and five. Maybe it's increased to six or seven. But nonetheless, it's very, very low. In Germany, uh, there is public funding available to all schools run by, the schools run by Jews, Catholics, Protestants, but not a single one for Muslims. So th just to, this is one example. The second, of course, is the discrimination in issues pertaining to ritual or religious slaughter in Germany. There's a very famous case. I won't go into the details here. Or consider the issue of burial places in Denmark where all cemeteries are owned by the National Lutheran Church. All deaths, regardless of religious affi affiliation of the dead, are to be registered with local pastoral offices. So once registered, Muslims have to negotiate with local pastors to, to bury in some portion of land, you know, their dead. 
but permission can be refused by the National Lutheran Church pastors, and it is refused very often. Uh, there are other issues like, I mean, there are other reasons why, why they're refused. There are lots of reasons why they're refused. I mean, one of them is that, that uh, it's required, the National Lutheran Church requires, maybe it's required by law, I, I'm a little unclear on that, but that the bodies have to be placed in caskets. And uh, Muslims don't place their bodies in caskets. And if you want to bury them without caskets, then that's not considered to be possible. And so till very recently, till Sweden became, had disestablished its church, uh, people had to send their dead bodies back home. Uh, they, now, because there is a little island off the coast of uh, Copenhagen, uh, which, is, which is owned by Sweden, and because Sweden doesn't have an established church, these bodies are buried there, but, uh, but, 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 but that certainly is a practice which probably is continuing, of bodies being exported to you know, wherever the, the original homelands of, of Muslim citizens of Denmark. There's no public holidays for any religious holiday except for Christianity, uh, and not to speak of of uh, the building of mosques and headdress and so on. So, so you can see that this is a very partial uh, uh, state. Uh, so uh, Tariq is, is, is right uh, that this is not a very robust and strong secularism uh, because there's no separation but only what I call distance. But given the, the partiality of the state... Uh, it is, you know, one wonders whether these states can be called secular at all. Of course, the European st- societies are secular, but whether European states are secular or not is, is something which is entirely open to question, and I don't think, frankly, I don't think they are. Um, so these institutional biases didn't really show up until recently because of some of the issues that are, some of the features that I mentioned the weakening of religious beliefs, decline in church belonging. Uh, uh, and because, because religion had begun to have a, a ghostly presence in society and so on but, uh, and, and therefore partiality to the dominant church didn't really matter because people felt that this was no big deal I mean it really didn't concern them substantively but with the immigration of workers from former colonies uh, and intensification of globalization uh, Christian faiths in Europe have been thrown together for the first time under conditions of modernity with pre- and post-Christian faiths, creating an unprecedented diversity, a deep dip- religious diversity, the like of which has not been seen in the last 400, 400 years in Europe. Now, amidst this diversity, institutional biases have to show up, Right? And, 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 and they, they really come into sharper relief. So, and this brings me to one of my central points. Uh, no, not yet. Yeah. All three political secularisms, the more robust American and French models and the rather modest European model, were born in predominantly single religion societies in societies where religious diversity had already been liquidated 
and a great deal of religious homogenization had taken place. A great deal of revisionist history of the Reformation and the wars of religion, I have in mind, for example, the work of Ben Kaplan. Uh, and in the sociological literature on religion, the work of people like Jose Casanova and Peter Baer, uh, all have rightly argued that during and after the wars of religion, the boundaries of the state in Europe were drawn along sectarian and, 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 and uh, more properly confessional lines, following the principle one king, one law, one faith. But there's another way of telling the story involving the use of the categories of self and other. This is, of course, pretty crude and so on, but I think, once again, for, for my purposes, it would do. In this narrative, religious homogenization came in the wake, among other things, of a persistent, deep, and pervasive anxiety about the other, about the other inside one's religion and the other within. The other was viewed and felt as an existential threat. So doctrinal differences were not mere intellectual disagreements, but were cast in order to undermine the basic trust that one had in one another. The other couldn't be lived with, but simply had to be expelled or exterminated. Now, this was the experience of most European societies in the, in the 15th and 16th century, where people faced the choice either to convert to the faith of the king or queen or face death or expulsion. Even in the largely middle belt, which came to have bi-confessional states, and I'm thinking of parts of Germany, of Belgium, of Switzerland, and so on, others were tolerated, but toleration frequently meant what Nilofagole, in another context, the Turkish sociologist uh, Nilofagole, has called invisibilization, a profoundly negative privatized condition. These vulnerable, non-dominant religion group, religious groups were expelled from the public domain, if not from the territory. That's what toleration meant. So the churches of these non-dominant groups couldn't be on the same high street uh, where the church of the dominant group existed. Rather, it was tucked away in the bylanes, uh, frequently lodged in buildings that couldn't look like churches, but were like resident halls and so on. So, so this, was, this, was, uh, this, was, this is kind of the background condition of, of the development of, of secularism. So, so Europe was divided into predominantly single religion societies, or at least societies where public and official life was captured by one confession. And I've, I've already explained England becoming gang, Anglican, France Catholic, and so on. And secularism, in whatever form, the three forms that I've talked about, were born, all of these were born as a result of a prolonged deconfessionalization or unchurching uh, 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 in, these, in these societies. They were inextricably linked to the church state model and are currently in crisis in non Christian societies where, under the influence of modernization theories, they were once believed to have traveled well as normative or ideological projects. Now, uh, so you can have, I mean, that's, the, that's a crisis, right, of, of, of these secularisms. Uh, and there are a number of questions that one can ask, uh, and that symbolize this crisis. So somebody could ask, for example, with the American model in mind, uh, 
Why is it not possible for the state to support religion, especially vulnerable religions? Or from a different point of view, one can ask, why can't state intervene in religion to support emancipatory causes, such as gender justice, uh, and where one can, one can demonstrate and show clearly that religious institutions or practices are hindrances to even a limited form of emancipation? Why just, you know, why, why show even passive respect to, to religion? In keeping the French model in mind, one can legitimately ask, why must state always actively disrespect religion? Why this hostility to religion? As if religion is nothing but superstition, obscurantism, source of all conflicts in the world, and so on. It's a legitimate question, and the reason for the crisis of, of political secularism. And keeping the West European model in mind, it might be asked, why support only different forms of Christian religions? Why not others? Or why disproportionately support these, these churches? Why not other religions? And I wish here to introduce a, a term of art, domination, which is, was in the title of my lecture, which for my purposes covers discrimination, marginalization, oppression, exclusion, degradation, humiliation, any illegitimate exercise of power which, uh, whereby the basic interests or the sense of self or the conception of the good life is persistently harmed or threatened by other groups. I mean, all of this of one group threatened or harmed by other groups. So one can ask, one can say, well, many of these political secularisms have been able to prevent the domination of the secular by religious. It's also possible to argue that these, have, these political secularisms have been able to prevent or reduce intra-religious domination. So, for example, interdenominational uh, conflict and domination in the United States and by controlling the, the oppressive nature of the church and the politically meddlesome nature of the church, you can say that there is, uh, in a way, it is, it is uh, taking care of intra-religious domination. <coughs> but uh, there's also something, something else, namely inter-religious domination. The domination by members of one religious group of un members of another religious group. And that is something that these political secularisms simply do not acknowledge as an important problem. And it is here that the Indian conception is, is extremely important. And, and I, should now, I should now come to, to, to speak of that. Again, the conception... Oh, I'm going to talk about two Indian conceptions, neither of which are, are, uh, are, are, are not contested in, in India. They're deeply contested in India. And neither of them are, are flawless and, and perfect. I mean, there are huge problems. And, and people sitting over here know how much crisis uh, these secularisms are, are undergoing. But, but my, my focus here is not to attend to the crisis of Indian secularism and the reason for that crisis and basically, these are external threats uh, to secularism. 
My point is just to, to present and to juxtapose them with these other models of secularism and to show that in future these might have a greater potential uh, to, 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 to address some of the big problems that many societies are going to face uh, and, 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 the, and the, it is from these conceptions that we will have to, in a way, in a sense, draw out uh, all the elements which will help us to rethink, reimagine, reconceive, reconceptualize political secularism. Okay, so now to come to India, the background condition in India was, as I, unlike, the, unlike Europe, was very different. For a start, different faiths, modes of worship, philosophical outlooks, outlooks and ways of practicing, uh, all these uh, 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 deep diversity, deep religious diversity, was accepted as part of the natural landscape. All were at home. Uh, Syrian Christians, Zoroastrians, Jews, Muslims, both as Arab traders on the Malabar coast, as well as Turks and Afghans who came in initially as conquerors, not to speak of the full variety of South Asian faiths, right? They were all there uh, in India, uh, all part of the natural landscape. Uh, the basic socio-psychic condition that existed was to feel and be secure. They all exhibited basic self collective self-confidence, possible only when there is trust between communities. The presence of the other was not questioned. There was no deep anxiety about the other, no basic level of, 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 of discomfort, no existential threat. Now, this is not to say that there weren't deep intellectual disagreements or conflicts, some of which even led to violent skirmishes, but it didn't issue in major wars or religious persecution. There was no collective physical assault on the other. The need for modern secularism, therefore, was not felt till the advent of colonial modernity, when colonial modernity began to unsettle this background condition. Only when religious coexistence couldn't be taken for granted and became a problem that this issue began to be spoken about, articulated, and explicitly invoked, and it became important to defend the idea uh, uh, that all religions must live in peace with one another. There should be a level of trust and comfort or that confidence between or among communities. If it is, uh, uh, if it is shattered, then it must be restored and so on. And this point was put sometimes normatively and sometimes merely affirmed. The term used by Mahatma Gandhi for this was communal harmony. Uh, but soon after independence, this idea found political translation and was articulated as secularism or political secularism. The state was to show what in Sanskrit or is called Sarva Dharma Sambhav, that is to say it should be equally well disposed to all parts, to God or gods or the ultimate good of all religions, but this shouldn't be confused with what can be called multiple establishment, where state continues to have formal ties with all religion and endorses all religions and helps all religions and so on. Uh, rather, its task was to be an entity separate from all religions. 
and to ensure, as I said, that whenever the basic confidence between communities was disturbed, and when the trust between communities was undermined, then the state must do something actively to foster good communal relations with one another. In other words, whenever there is a threat of, I used this word earlier, inter-religious domination, where majority religions seem to be threatening or marginalizing minority religions, then the state, as an impartial arbiter, should step in in order to restore some kind of an equilibrium or balance or equal respect and so on. So to generalize uh, even more, here's a completely new understanding of secularism. Secularism came to be used as a certain stance, a certain comportment of the state, whose primary function is to promote, develop a certain quality of sociability, to foster a certain quality of relations among religious communities under conditions of deep religious diversity, an idea which is very, very different from the other three models of political secularism that I've outlined. Okay, I mean, this is something that I won't go into, but let me just come to the second model, and then I'll stop. A second conception also developed, which was even more ambitious, because it tried to combine the emancipatory agenda of secularism, which is there undoubtedly in the French and the, 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 the European uh, conceptions, want to combine this emancipatory agenda with the other major aim of fostering better quality of relations, or to put it difficultly, to confront and fight simultaneously both Intra, inter and intra-religious dominations. And this is actually the constitutional secularism of India. That's what it really is. I mean, it, Indians don't seem to realize what a treasure house it has. Uh, they have. Uh, uh, they fall short all the time of this model, but if they only went back to this constitutional secularism, they'd find huge amount of conceptual resources to to figure out ways of confronting uh, 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 the variety of problems that are faced. So on this model, uh, there is active respect for all religions. After all, the protection of religious freedom for all religions is, is there. But there's also disrespect for some features of each of the religions. And that's why this combination of active respect and active disrespect is what I call, I mean, I can't elaborate it here. Uh, I'm nearing the end of the, my time. It's a complex dialectical attitude to religion, which I've called critical respect. So you're neither servile to religion nor hostile. There's neither blind deference nor indifference. There is respect, but it's, it's critical, right? Uh, so on, on the one hand, protect all religions, especially vulnerable religious communities, by granting community-specific rights in order to make them specially at home. So, for example, the right to establish and maintain their educational institutions, to give subsidies to schools run by religious communities. That's all there. That's the active respect part. But also to hit hard at religion-based oppressions, exclusions, and discriminations. 
So to ban untouchability, and this is an article in the Constitution, or to forcibly open all Hindu temples to former untouchables, in, uh, should they wish to enter them, and so on. So, so there, there is no identification with any one religion. There is no one-sided exclusion of the French variety where you are only hostile. There is no wall of separation of the American variety where you keep off, you have a hands-off approach because that's the only way in which you embody respect. You neither exclusively support one nor all, nor hinder one or all. Uh, what you do is to have what I call a principal distance, right? I'm not keeping pace with... Okay, and this is the last slide. So what is principal distance? Separation here is replaced by or reinterpreted as principal distance, which is a flexible strategy that engages with religion or disengages from it, engages positively or negatively with religion, engages with one, more, one religion more than it does with another religion, depending entirely on which of these reduces inter- and intra-religious domination, or which of these is able to give us the best combination of the three complex values of equality, liberty, and fraternity, all of them, right? Uh, and in, in doing so, I think, and that's the very last thing that I want to say, in doing so, I think uh, they, they, they gave us a, a, a completely new conception of political secularism, uh, which is not anti-religious, uh, because that's one of the big, big issues uh, for people who are deeply religious. They all think of secular or secular states and secularism as, as, uh, uh, as detrimental to, to their religions, right? So this actually is a perspective which is not, not anti-religious, but is definitely against uh, institutionalized religious domination in both the forms that I just mentioned, inter- and intra-religious. Uh, and there is a, a, a whole variety of societies in the world where, where religion, for, 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 for it being an accumulative tradition, uh, religion in the form of piety, uh, and religion as a, as a deposit, a historical deposit of a whole lot of things that people uh, cherish. Uh, people want this, but, but I, I'm pretty certain that there are a host of people in the same societies who suffer, I mean women and Dalits in particular, who suffer victimization and oppression, if not on grounds of, exclusively on grounds of religion, certainly uh, on, on grounds which include a religious rationale as well. And, and this secularism helps us to deal very well with that. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much indeed. I mean, there was absolutely no need for negotiation. You've uh, hit the nail on the head precisely. We've got a, a half hour now to take questions and have discussion. So um, let's just start right away. If there starts to be a number of people wanting to ask questions, I might take them in groups. But to begin with, can I have this uh, lady on the side here, please? Could you just briefly say who you are before you speak so that our speaker knows? Kishma Faulkner, a Liberal Democrat in the House of Lords. Um, Professor Parker, wonderful to hear you espouse those views that I know you've held for some time very clearly, but I'm afraid I have to say I'm going to disagree with you, and I, I rather suggest that Ralph Miliband would have as well. Um, sitting with Anglicans, I will use the UK example here, sitting with Anglican bishops in the House of Lords, my frustration is that there isn't enough backbone in Anglicanism. The reason that the European state can get away with, as you put it, being, um, giving preferential treatment to one religious group is because on the whole European religious groups, but certainly in the United Kingdom, the religious group is so conscious of its obligations to diversity and minorities that they are extremely liberal with a small L. Uh, so that's the one thing I would say. The other thing that makes them liberal, or certainly makes the United Kingdom discourse very liberal, coming to a level three, is the existence of the Human Rights Act. When you have equality and non-discrimination enshrined as clearly as you do, then actually it doesn't matter whether the state, for historical and cultural reasons, elevates one group to another. Because as a Muslim minority, I can tell you that I can use the law and the, law, uh, the rule of law prevails. But I really want to just briefly challenge you on the Indian model, because as you know, I have Indian antecedents as well. Um, and I think the problem with the Indian model is that it looks good on the surface and it sounds all right. But when you have such a significant minority, several significant minority, but particularly Indian Muslims, that are such a large group and they're treated as a group by the state, to the extent that individual rights are diminished because they're treated as a group. And I give you the example of Indian personal law, family law, where a woman, a Muslim woman's rights are much diminished in the way the courts apply Muslim family law. That you end up with, uh, with almost seeing democracy itself diminished in this groupthink. And my final point would be that I would say that your principal distance is indeed moral relativism, a la Stephen Luke's and his views on moral, re on moral relativism. Uh, it becomes the state then disengages with particular people within society. Take me to your leader. The imam will rule to the extent that uh, it doesn't remain a liberal democracy anymore, any longer. Okay, thank you very much. Please, yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, so let me begin with your last point. I think it's important to make a distinction between uh, moral relativism and moral pluralism. I think principal distance is for moral pluralism, not for moral relativism. I mean, there are, there are clearly some principles which are laid out, that, I mean, of values, principles may give a slightly different connotation to people, particularly people who are very Kant, uh, Kantians uh, in a certain kind. And so on. But value, there, there's a, there are a number of values. And, and, the f and when there are, there are these deep values in society, it's, uh, 
It's his, uh, uh, I, if, and we were to make a choice uh, whether to, to give up some in order to protect others or whether to find some kind of a balance between them, particularly if these values are held by different groups in society, different uh, uh, religious groups in society, then my preference would be uh, because this is something which is revisable. It is not final. It is something which is uh, integral to an ongoing process. Uh, there, are, these are no, there are no hard and fast rules about it. But, but for the moment, I would say uh, negotiate these different values. Uh, some, some compromises are not bad. I mean, if, if I give up something of value for that which I see has no value at all, I mean, just to put it very crudely, I, I, I give up a value because I want to maximize wealth or, 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 or I want to conquer some other territory. Or, or, uh, that's, that's obviously uh, uh, one way of giving up value for the sake of, uh, of some things. But there's another thing when there is a genuine conflict between, and I consider this, and this relates me to the second point, I, I, I do consider uh, group belonging as a very important uh, aspect of human flourishing. Uh, and I do feel that people also, at various stages, don't want to, want to be and to behave and, and want to cultivate dispositions which are independent of the group, right? No matter which group they belong to. Now, I think these are complex uh, 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 aspects of human beings and a complete uh, understanding of what human flourishing is must be able to accommodate both of them. And, and, and once again, we know that these are, these are issues over which there can be conflicts. Uh, and uh, I'd rather find a balance between them rather than to, by fiat uh, or by, by some understanding of how other people must be uh, as, a, as a kind of moral imperative which I've invented for myself and for others altogether, I would rather have a more democratic approach to negotiation between these values. So I would, uh, I, I, my view is, I may be mistaken about it, and I'm, I, you know, I'd be very happy to be convinced by you on this, but I, but I think that uh, these issues of group rights and individual rights, uh, there's a genuine conflict there, there's a genuine moral conflict there, and, and, and the sources of these moral conflicts are deep, and, 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 uh, and they, they must be properly negotiated case by case rather than decided, you know, uh, uh, by fiat, uh, at any given point of time, uh, uh, which is what I, I think the strength of the Indian model, a lot of people think that this is deeply, this is one of the great problems of the Indian model, that it's very ambivalent on this issue, that it doesn't take the side of individual rights all the time, that it's got these group rights included in it. And I think it's the, it's the strength of it. It doesn't legislate once for, for all times that individual rights are going to trump group rights. Uh, uh, but rather, there is, there, is, there is a whole space available for democratic negotiation, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we are just disagreed on this. Uh, uh, I, I, take to, I take this more pluralist view, which you were thinking was relativism, uh, on, on, uh, on, uh, on the British issue... Uh, I mean, I would, uh, I would just uh, take it as a comment. I, you know infinitely more than I know about the British situation. I mean, I could be wrong about it, but, 
but I mean, I need to be, uh, the, much more needs to be discussed before I can actually agree with what you said. Okay, can I just um, see some other people who want to ask questions? Just whack your hands up. So this, this gentleman here and then this gentleman at the front. Just remember to say who you are. Hi, my name is Vineet Gupta. Um, I was looking at the different models you had for uh, like the different kinds of secularism and the ones that worked in the Western world as opposed to India. And I saw how the, the models that worked in societies that have one dominant religion, how they can have a, a separation and how that's not going to work in India. So you need to have like a different theory. And then I was looking at the two different theories or two different schools of thought as a, like to deal with the diversity in India. So the first one was basically where the state acts as a, a mediator just to prevent domination of one religion over the other. So they keep a distance, but they act as a police, so to speak. And then you look at the second, the second school of thought where they act as a parent, so to speak, right? Where they, they chastise certain values and they promote certain values. So my question is, how can that be looked at as, as a secular solution when that defeats the purpose of secularism? Because you have, peop- you have the, the state um, setting an agenda, and if a certain religion fits into that agenda, all well and good, and if it doesn't. So you have people basically saying, this is right, this is wrong, and then, if, and then they promote that with the religion. So that defeat, to me, I think that defeats the whole point of secularism, which is supposed to be separation, in my, in my opinion. So that's basically my question. Like, how could you possibly exclude personal bias in the policy makers? Because they're going to belong to a religion, too. And yeah. I'm, I'm saying this from the perspective of the American system, like when you have uh, Supreme Court justices, right? You ha- and they set the policy of the land. And the whole point of vetting them, the whole point of getting to know what they, their, their personal beliefs is because they're the ones who are, it's go- they, it, there's an understanding that their personal beliefs is going to seep into the policy. And that's the whole point. So when you have, when you understand that, how could the second the second kind of Indian social, uh, not socialism, sorry, secularism, yeah. um, how could that be possibly be looked at as a, as a solution? Because you're going to have people in the government setting the policy, and they're going to have their own bias in it. So that just, I, I think the first school of thought, it, it, it fits into that. So I don't know. That was my question. Uh, I, I got a bit lost uh, somewhere. I mean, I, I do probably understand the trust of what you're saying, but I, I mean, I just want to give a roundabout way of, uh, I, I have a roundabout way of answering this question. I mean, you talked about biases of the state. Of course, there are certain biases that the state have, states have. Uh, some biases are explicit, and some biases are implicit, and the biases of the state are quite different from the biases of state officials who, who need not always uh, carry the biases of the state uh, and may act against the biases of the state because of their own biases, right? But, but I think that the, that the state that I'm talking about is a democratic state. 
And one of the conditions of a democratic state, it doesn't always happen, it doesn't always happen in practice, but one of the conditions of having a democratic state is that you always begin a certain process of dialogue, discussion, negotiation. Uh, and and in, through that process, you not only make your biases explicit, but if those biases are illegitimate and accepted to be illegitimate by a very large number of people, you try and you know, get rid of them. It may take time. It's not something that's going to happen instantly. It takes time, but it can happen. And number one. Number two, that these state democratic states are not uh, single-age independent. They're multiple-age independent. In other words, the, the task of removing all the illegitimate biases, both of state officials and of state uh, institutions, is not uh, uh, dependent on just the state officials themselves. Uh, there are all kinds of actors who must, must get involved. Uh, there, there are there's the judiciary. There is an active and vibrant public sphere in which the media has to play a very important role. Uh, there are some. There, not every politician is going to be, you know, party to this whole activity of removing biases. There will be, you know, but but you expect some people, you know, somebody to act as statesperson and do something about it. There's whole. There's a, there, there are civil society groups. There's a very alert citizenry, and it's only over a period of time when all these come into play that you remove uh, the biases. And, and the kind of solutions that, that we are hoping to achieve may not even be explicit before the process has begun. These solutions actually emerge. I mean, the broad picture is there, but the, as I said, you have to go case by case. And, and in the, in, in what happens in, 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 the, in the particular case, which is under discussion, is going to is really not known to everybody. And and we, we hope that the solution that comes out will be correct. But it's possible that it's mistaken, and it's got to be picked up again by people, right? So just to take one example, the, I believe that the I don't know I may be in a minority here, but I believe that the headscarf issue in France. The issue came up in 1989, but it was, you know, resolved in one way in 19 in 2004. I, do, I don't accept that conclusion. As a matter of fact, a lot of people, a lot of members in the council that are themselves very ambivalent about it. And I'm sure the fact is that that is now the law in for public schools, but it's not certain that it will remain so. It will be picked up again and, and taken taken uh, forward by people. I mean, either there will be acceptance of, of, of it, and therefore people will begin to consent to it, or they'll do something, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get up and fight. So, so the process uh, of arriving at what is a consensual, uh, a commonly agreed view is, is a very long, drawn, and difficult process. And that's the process of the removal of biases of the state and of state officials. Okay, can we have um, the director, please? Okay. Oh, I'm Fred Calhoun from the LSC. Uh, Rajiv, let me join in congratulating you for a really interesting talk, really clearly exhibiting. I want to pick up on a feature of the both of the Indian secularisms, stronger in the second, which is that you see them grounded in a commitment to non-domination liberty and equality in the stronger case. And I wonder where you conceive that to come from 
and whether we could relate that back to the wider range of secularisms. That is, is there a story in which France and more generally Europe conceive of the sources for liberty and equality as arising outside of religion in political and social struggles? The US story is more one in which these struggles are understood to be partly within and among religious groups, ambivalently. That is, first off, there's not always a wall of separation, but even where there is, it's a separation from the state, not politics. And there's a a kind of engagement. Um, We have people like Habermas, long secular, looking now to religion for sources for emancipatory thought. Where in the Indian case do you see the sources? What sort of narrative connects religion to a narrative of of anti-domination, of liberty and equality? And is it to some extent the anti-colonial struggle itself that produces that? And is this fading as a source? And is that one reason for an increasing predominance or increasing role for self-declared religious movements that do not embrace the anti-domination idea. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, the, uh, if you, it's pretty clear that in Europe, uh, uh, if uh, you begin to see the church as a source of, of domination, uh, the sources of Fighting domination came from outside the church and outside, outside, you know, religion. Uh, so that's, I mean, we have no disagreement on that. Uh, but but uh, these were sources that dealt with, and that's my claim, with one kind of domination, namely intra-religious or the domination of the secular by the religious. So fight against that. But there was another very important dimension, which was not even in the in the foreground, which is inter-religious domination. I mean, because that's this whole issue of secularism emerged only after religious diversity had been liquidated. You know, this is the story which, uh, in not in the same way, not for the same purpose, people like Jose and others have yeah, post sixteen forty eight, right? The, where, where even religious, once you have one law, one king, one faith, religious dissenters are not just religious dissenters to be weeded out, but they're actually political dissidents. And you've got to throw them out or exterminate them or do something with them. And that's the story which everybody, you know, I think need to be, I think that's a story which people are pretty well aware of. So, so there, the sources are outside religion, but to tackle one kind of domination, not both. In India, the sources are coming from both in order to prevent or reduce both forms of domination, right? So there is, of course, uh, there is a certain, I mean, undeniable influence of what we call colonial modernity, of the John Stuart Mills, and, you know, that's undeniable. And that's a source of people like Nehru and others. Uh, But apart from that, there are also a wide variety of internal reform movements that are taking place. Religious reform movements taking place, social reform movements taking place, that are certainly very conscious of their deep religious identity. They haven't given up that identity, but they think they wish to bring reforms. And these reforms are of two kinds. One reforms are, of course, 
purificatory reforms. You know, the Chuck is talking about them quite a lot. But the other are freedom and equality-centered reforms, right, which are talking about emancipation of women and emancipation of uh, uh, various groups. As a matter of fact, this has a much longer history than till very recently we people who are secular. We haven't quite acknowledged that this is a, there's a much lo- longer history here. Uh, goes, uh, going all the way back to a huge number of bhakti movements, which are seen to be religious, which are Buddhism, which is again seen to be religious. God knows what this means. but So there's a, there's a whole religious aspect to this. And, uh, so it's, and, and there is uh, sources of religion, particularly in people like Gandhi, and what Gandhi relies on, of tackling this inter-religious dimension, Right? Uh, so both these dominations to be addressed simultaneously, and the sources are coming from both religious and secular, uh, uh, and, uh, as distinct from uh, addressing one type of domination where the sources are coming very largely from secular, so-called secular, and not from religion. But that's the whole, the, the, the two contrasts. Okay. Can I ask a short follow-up on it, which is just by... Buying all of that and fitting with the framework <clears throat> too. Is there a change in the extent to which these sources are being mobilized to address themes of freedom and equality that are not interreligious? Is there a a loss of some kind going on in the contemporary or recent past? of the, the, what you're describing in an idealized form as the capacity to address at once the individual and collective, the interreligious and the intra-religious, and indeed other kinds of freedom and equality. Is that in any sense being eroded or at least not mobilized as much right now? You're absolutely right about that. I mean, it's not been mobilized enough. And as a matter of fact, this whole project has been continuously being sidelined by people who believe in a certain kind of nationalism, which in fact was, you can, you can actually uh, see the birth of that nationalism in Spain in 1492 with the expulsion of Jews and Muslims. And, and the further development of that idea, which took place in the, in, in the, in the, in the, with the breakdown of Latin Christendom and, and, the, and the birth of the confessional state, right? I mean, that model of the state, uh, the national state, right, has given inspiration equally to a large number of people all over the world. And that is the model of inspiration for a very number of people, a large number of people in India today. And I talked about how the secular thing is being contested all the time from its very birth. I mean, actually, both these models are born together, uh, one deeply and sharply in conflict with, with the other. And there is, on the one hand, this ethnic nationalist, which is talking about citizenship, which is grounded only in one religion, and which is talking about, it is talking about inter-religious domination of a certain kind, but wants to solve the problem of inter-religious domination in exactly the way that people try to solve it during the wars of religion, by saying one law, one king, one faith, okay, everybody has to either be this or you be expelled. You know, that kind of idea of cleansing is something which is very much uh, 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 it's not being foregrounded always, but it's it's underlying uh, a, a certain way of thinking, and so these, there is a contestation going on all the time. So, yeah, I mean, I 
Thank you, thank you for the comment, but I think the answers are pretty clear. Okay. Um, I think we're going to run out of time. Can I just get a feeling of how many people are interested in asking questions? Wait, wait, put your hand up if... It's uh, large numbers of gentlemen, so if anyone who's not a gentleman wants to ask a question, um, please do. But can I just start then? Let's try and do two rounds. Try and keep it quick. The, the gentleman with the stripy shirt at the back and then this bloke in the middle. And if you could just both ask your questions at the same time. I'm um, from Scotland, which at least we like to claim is the oldest secular and open democracy, I'm being told to say, Um, uh, which um, I'm told Scotland, not open democracy, is the oldest um, secular Western state. Um, And the uh, model of secularism that you're taught in Scotland growing up, at least, that developed there is slightly different, I think, from any of the ones you identified in that it was very much about the working class religious people rebelling against their rulers telling them what their religion was. So it was religious people fighting against the control of religion by the state rather than control within religion or between religion, if that makes sense. Um, and um, so I suppose my question is partly how does that fit into your model? And then quickly just there's a, um, a slight follow-up to that which I think interrelates, which is that um, you talk about the American model, but for me it's fascinating that, of course, a lot of what we would see as the state in Britain, i.e. the welfare state, is provided in a lot of the southern states in particular by big churches. So although they aren't religious schools in the same way, there's huge swathes of the function of the state supplied by that. And so there's much less secularism in a sense, even though there aren't the same kinds of religious school. So I suppose my question is, um, how do those things fit into your model? And um, Sorry, I, I actually didn't get the last bit before you raised the question. So, 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 well, so the, the point was that large swathes of what we would see as the welfare state in Western Europe are um, provided in America and other countries which see themselves as very secular by big churches. And so although we might talk about education being secular um, and less secular in Europe and more so in America, um, surely the, in, in, in practice the function of the state often is provided in the states uh, much more by the church than it is here. Let's take a note. Um, we're just going to take one other person serially. This this man here with the black, uh, yeah, him. <laughs> the person next to Mukalika. <laughs> uh, Nico Heller, um, you could you just sort of maybe say where you see the difference in your model between states and governments. I mean, for instance, obviously, you know, the U.S. has a very different notion of the civil service and government. A new administration comes in and the top layers cleared out. In the U.K., civil servants stay. So it's a very different state model. Um, and, and it sort of intersects, of course, with your model you know, of, of, of secularity, but it's, it, it makes it much more complex. And, of course, linked to that, the sort of notion of practice, you know, state practice, and to what extent is state practice, as opposed to religious practice, um, and the relationship between the two separable from a sort of a notion of scientific or enlightenment practice? In other words, what do you actually mean by the state and its practice, um, and, and does that have a name if religion has a name? 
Okay, now I'm actually going to abuse my position to ask you a quick question, which is to, to ask you to, to say a little bit more about the distinction between inter- and intra-religious conflict, because you've used that a number of times yeah, in your yeah, argument, yeah, and it's sure, quite thanks. important. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you think about it historically, it's clear that what at one time seems a strong religious border might seem less so at another time. So it was implicit in some of your comments that the sort of divisions you were talking about was between Christianity and Islam, for example. And yet, if you look at 19th or 18th century Europe, Catholics, for many Protestants, are the sort of antichrist. I mean, they're very strongly differentiated. So the salience of these borders waxes and wanes. And what's the significance of that for your argument? Uh, I don't think that is uh, of great significance if your model wants to respond to both. I mean, the fact that one sort of slides into and becomes part of the other or vice versa. As long as both are religion-related dominations, it doesn't really... I mean, it's, it's of no, uh, broadly speaking, no great relevance. However, the distinction between the two is important. Uh, I mean, for my, to my mind, intra-religious is... Uh, when people uh, are somehow people who have not given, you know, belonging, given up belonging to their faith, find that there are all sorts of problems in the way the church is behaving, uh, and and any kind of struggle that they have against the church would, I mean, this is just one example, will, will be intra-religious, right? I mean... Uh, for my purposes, I would say that you know, the, even those people who are on the verge of actually giving up their religion but who are fighting the church, I would say are intra-religious. It's members of one religious community uh, doing all these nasty things uh, like uh, uh, discrimination, discriminate or oppress or exclude or marginalize or humiliate or degrade to members of their own community, right? Now... Uh, then there is another variety of intra-religious which can easily become inter-religious. That's what you were talking about. Which is what happened in the United States of America, right? Where different denominations were, were in a sense conflicting with one another or even fighting one another or, or, or uh, contesting over the same space, uh, fighting for you know, which of them might get established. And, 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 and this is all happening within, these are all Protestant sects, but they are still engaged in issues which are religious issues. Mm. Uh, so this would also be intra-religious. Mm. But inter-religious I would, is, is when members of one religious community do all these nasty things to members of another religious community, so that the, the, the boundaries between religious communities is pretty clearly delineated. Uh, so they're Hindus and Muslims, or Hindus and Christians, or Christians and Muslims, or Jews and Hindus and Muslims, and Parsis and Jains and Buddhists. I mean, all of them. I mean, anything that happens, if all these nasty things happen amongst them, there, and and this can happen only in societies which are deeply, you know, already characterized by deep religious diversity. So, so the point of making the distinction, of course, was very clear. Uh, I think. That, that, that this is a problem that was, uh, which, which instead of being addressed, 
and, and uh, some solution, a, a morally defensible solution being found to it in the 15th century and the 16th century, solutions were found, which I'm pretty certain, even by their own lights, were morally indefensible. And I mean, even uh, people who were tolerated must have, you know, thanked their God that they were at least allowed to live. But I think they must have felt, you know, horribly humiliated if they, when they were when their church was taken away from them and they were given a residence hall to practice and so on. Uh, and uh, uh, and certainly, I mean, this was the best available normative option. I mean, the other options were clearly. Uh, in, uh, beyond the pale of morality, which is extermination, expulsion, or even you know forcible conversion. I mean, I thought uh, so. So, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the distinction, and that's the distinction that is Thanks, playing yeah. up in, in in what I'm. I don't saying. want to steal you from these. Other no, but I mean, I I I have to say that uh, I I I've. Uh, I mean, it's something to do with my ears. I mean, I I just. Uh, if the, more dis the more distant people are, the more separated I feel from them, and the less I hear what they say. And maybe it is because... Uh, it's principal distance. <laughs> it isn't principal distance. It's just plain distance and separation. I mean, it's separation which is continuing. So I, I, I didn't fully understand. I, actually, I, it's not that I didn't understand the question. I just didn't hear them properly. It was maybe... it was. Uh, I, I'm unable to answer those questions because you have to come be intimate, you know, come closer uh, and, and, and say what you have to say a little more slowly uh, and then I would be able to answer them. Uh, but I, I'm unable to answer those questions. I'm sorry. Well, well it's a bit uh, impolite of me having taken over the space to answer your questions, but I do see that the time has come. Um, so could I perhaps ask people if they wanted to speak again to come down afterwards and, and talk to sure. Professor Bhagavad? Absolutely. Let, let me just um, end by saying, I mean, we've heard a characteristic talk, I think, from, from you today. I mean, it's, it's one that addresses issues of high public importance. You make use of sharp analytical uh, tools and you draw on an extraordinary range of empirical references to make your argument, but all the while being uh, inspired, I think, by what you refer to as India's treasure house of historical experience. And I think that's something we could all well do to think further on. Not out of chauvinism. Not out of chauvinism, no. <laughs> why, why would we think that? So can I ask you to, again, thank Professor Bhargav for an excellent lecture.